Let's begin then by first meeting John. John introduces himself in verse 9. He's already introduced himself as the writer. Previously in verse 4, we saw that this morning that this book has dual authorship. While it's inspired by God, John is writing it with a purpose, even though his greetings do not come from himself. They come from the inspiration of God. He's carried along. He is, in much a sense, a tool. While I would never expect a hammer to get out of its drawer and run around and nail in every loose nail... I would expect a good manager of hammers to pick up that hammer and to nail in every loose nail, right? And so John is used as an instrument or a tool in the same way in God's hand. He writes in verse 9, I, John, and he identifies himself with several descriptors. First, he gives his name, but then he says, I am your brother, And then he says that I am your partner in tribulation, partner in the kingdom, and partner in the patient endurance that are in Jesus. Now these introductions are significant because they tell us how we should regard the one that is writing all of these things down. First, John is a brother, making reference to the fact that he is identifying himself with the seven churches that are intended to receive not only these letters written by Christ or or drafted by Christ for them, but also all of the prophecies that will foretell of the things that are yet to come, and also those that are inheritors of all the promises of God that lay at the end of this book in chapters 20 and 21. He says, I am your brother. We should be familiar with this language as those that have been adopted by the grace of God. Paul says in Romans chapter 12 that we, being many, are one body in Christ and everyone members of one another. So too, when we view the kingdom of God in our mind, we should have this concept of being adopted into a fraternal organization. Might even go so far as to say a a sorority, where we have family relating one to another with no higher or even more important relationship than that which exists within the church. He also identifies himself, though, as partner. And this word partner is applied to multiple things. Partner in tribulation to the kingdom and the patient endurance. What does it mean to be a partner in the tribulation? It is expressing the moment in time that John is writing this letter. It wasn't a time of peace for the churches. Most likely, Revelation is recorded somewhere between 90 and 95 AD. So this is 60 years or so after Jesus Christ had been crucified. The church was not the most popular organism or entity in the world. And as a matter of fact, they were still being persecuted. We remember Paul as the great persecutor of the church, or before he was Paul when he was Saul, the great persecutor of the church. These things still existed for Christians. And as a matter of fact, it wasn't until the year 200 AD that the church really began to be accepted at all by society in the Roman Empire. So the church is still persecuted, still, um, still being chased away and marginalized. Now, that carries with it great blessing. Throughout history, we have found that the church has never been healthier than when there has been exceptional external opposition against the church. I wonder why. I think it's because when there's external opposition against the church, the real Christians show up and the fake ones don't. However, whenever society generally accepts the Christians and there is no such persecution, 
The opposite happens. The real Christians become discouraged by the fake Christians that show up. And this is really getting to the issue that John is writing about, that he's beginning to address in these churches that he has a relationship with. We'll stick that feather in our cap and come back to it maybe in a few weeks. But here is the issue. He recognizes himself as a partner in the tribulation, as a partner in the patient endurance that are in Jesus. The exhortation given to Christians, especially in light of persecution, is not to simply ignore it, not to even um, pay no mind to it, not to even combat it. But it is to love through it, to be sacrificial through it. It is to emulate Christ in the way that we love even our persecutors. John identifies himself, most importantly, as a partner in the kingdom. It's interesting that he places kingdom between patient endurance and tribulation there in verse 9. Because he recognizes that they're suffering through tribulation. And also their patient endurance which pushes them onward to all of the glories of heaven is found in recognizing the kingdom that they exist in. So John introduces himself in this way, and then he says that he was on the island called Patmos. This is a real place. It still exists. As a matter of fact, you can even go vacation there. If you spend time in Turkey, you can travel to the island, which was formerly called Patmos. And what we know about this island is that the Roman Empire used it as a rock quarry, and they also exiled prisoners to Patmos, who would have to essentially fend for themselves or die um, if they were malcontent trouble stirrers, if they stirred the pot and caused issues within organized society, you know, just get rid of... These are where all the conspiracy theorists in our day would go. Michelle. You need to quit watching TikTok. No, I'm just kidding. TikTok is happening in the He was on the island of Patmos, but he doesn't say he was there for just being a troublemaker. He gives an account as to the reason why he wound up where he is at. He says, on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. What made him a troublemaker? Was that he stood for the word of God. That he defended the testimony of Christ and his church in light of being a partner in tribulation, in light of being a member of the kingdom of God, in light of being patient and enduring for what Christ had given the church. So we meet John. He's on the island of Patmos, the small island about four miles by eight miles off the coast of modern-day Turkey. Here, he is writing from a particular state. He says in verse 10, I was in the Spirit. That's a weird phrase, right? How many of you can say that you have been in the Spirit? What does this mean? What does John possibly mean by saying that he is in the Spirit? In the first century, this would not have been a strange saying. We remember what Jesus taught in John chapter 4 as he met with the woman at the well. And he, she asked him, 
You say that the proper, or the Jews, the Jews say that the proper place for wor to worship is in Jerusalem, but our fathers worshiped here in Samaria. Where are we to worship? And Jesus said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, but the day is coming when you shall neither worship in this place or that place, but true worship shall be in... You guys want to fill in the blank? Spirit and in truth. Spirit and in truth. You see, worshiping God, as odd as it, it seems to say this, is, is a transcendental experience. A transcendent experience. It means recognizing that we have a relationship with God. That we have the ability to worship Him. When John says, I was in the Spirit, he is simply applying the same phraseology that Paul used when writing to the church in Corinth. In 1 Corinthians 14, verse 2, when he said that when we perform spiritual gifts, we do so if it's not in the Spirit, it is meaningless. So John, writing here, says that he is in the Spirit. On the Lord's day. What is the Lord's day? Sunday? Oh. This is the first time in Christian literature that we find this phrase, the Lord's Day. Now, I'm, not, I'm going to try to avoid jumping down this rabbit hole, but I've got some friends that need to hear this, and I know you guys aren't them, so I'm going to tell them to listen to this recording later, and you guys are going to have to endure it. There are those that say that the Lord's Day is Sunday. I believe that is the meaning of that John intended. And there's a reason for that. During the first century, the Roman emperors prescribed on the people that the first day of the month would be the emperor's day. And the Christians, recognizing their loyalty to their Savior, said the first day of the month can be emperor's day, but every, day, every first day of the week is going to be the Lord's day commemorating the time where there was a Sabbath, which would be the last day of the week, that's Saturday, commemorating the time when the Lord Christ was reconnected with His disciples after His resurrection, which was on the third day after Good Friday, Sunday. I say this little rabbit hole to you. In my opinion, every day is the Lord's day because He is Lord of every single day. And so if, if you want to ascribe to the 1689 London Baptist Confession or whatever, then you go right ahead. But that is not an issue that I, I really find a lot of favor with. I think what is important as we look at our text, let me, I've chased that rabbit, let's come back to our text now. What's important when we look at our text is that John was in the Spirit, he was worshiping God, and it was on the Lord's Day, I believe he means Sunday here, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. He doesn't say a trumpet. He says it's like a trumpet. Saying, write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatria, and to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. What is remarkable about this particular list is that if we were able to look on a map of where all these seven churches are, it is very likely that John 
during his ministry when he was a troublemaker, whenever he was bearing witness to the Word of God and even the testimony of Jesus Christ, that he may have in fact been an elder or a member of each of these churches and at the very least had a personal relationship with them. This is important for us to note because many people view Revelation and and because it's such a strange type of literary genre that we've become unfamiliar with in our day, they want to run away from the immediate context, the historical context, which would have been, this is intended for seven real churches with with real people inside of them, real people that needed to hear these words. And the author, the human author, John, has a real relationship with these people. In many ways, what he is describing is relationships with churches that he has either belonged to or that he has been involved in ministry alongside of. I think that's an important point for us to observe as we consider what this book could mean for us. After all, if we divorce the text from its original context, the meaning could be whatever we want it to mean. But I said this morning that the purpose of this book is not to be a puzzle for us to solve. Rather, it is truth for us to expound and apply to our lives. He's given a particular commission then to write and record these events for the benefit of those churches. That means to say, when we consider what it means when he's writing down the things that are and the things that are yet to come, These are the things that are yet to come for churches that existed in the past. Perhaps still there are some that are yet to come for us today, but not necessarily. Does that make sense? It's an important point to grab hold of if we're going to be able to work through the book of Revelation. These things have root in a real time in history for a real group of people. And they are alive and active for us today. If we, if we do not have a concept of that, we have no hope of being able to understand this book. So if you have questions about that, I'll encourage you just to ask me about it later then. Let's get then to these things that he is supposed to write about. We've met John. Who is he? Now let's say, what did John see? Beginning in verse 12, he turned and he saw the voice that was speaking to him. And on turning, he saw seven golden lampstands. In the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand, He held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. What John saw when he turned around were the seven golden lampstands, and there's no debate or reason for us to ask what do these lampstands mean because it's explained for us explicitly in verse 20. It says that the mystery of these seven stars so that he saw in the right hand, the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, the seven lampstands are the seven churches. But what's remarkable about the imagery that he sees is this imagery conjures back, and this is important, I'm telling you, man, it's 
so important. I wish I could just make you all believe this as much as I believe it. If you're going to understand the book of Revelation, you have to understand the imagery on which John is drawing from. He's writing to people with a predominantly Jewish background. And so when he describes the lampstands, immediately in their mind, they're thinking about the lampstands that existed in Solomon's temple. They're thinking of the lampstands that existed at the throne room of God. They're thinking of the lampstands described by Ezekiel. But what's unique about this? When we read the instructions for the tabernacle in the wilderness that Moses delivered to the Israelites, there was a single lampstand. And on that lampstand were different candlesticks. When John's revelation in his new perspective given to him of heavenly things, he does not see one lampstand, but he sees seven lampstands, each of them with their own star, each of them with their own source of light, because this now is a depiction of what has taken place and transpired in the creation of the church. This is something to pause, to wonder, and to behold as we consider what our church is. In Greenwood. In the past, God covenanted with his people through Abraham that there would be one people through those 12 tribes of Israel, that they would be the people of God, and that they would be a blessing to the people of the whole world. There is no longer just one candlestick, but now the church, as an independent, autonomous, local body, has its own light bearing witness into the entire world. All of these churches are still united. As we look at what was in the center of these churches, in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man. Now, churches are not united by government entities or, or even church governments is what I mean by that, or even a particular form of polity like some people would like to ascribe. But churches, true churches, as they have always been, are united in the fact that their Lord is the one true Lord. It is Jesus Christ, this one described here with the messianic name, Son of Man. This name describes Christ. And when John turns and he sees him, he sees him in a light that had never been beheld before. John, even unable to recognize him because he looks so remarkably different. He is clothed in a long robe like what we see in Isaiah chapter 6 as a message of his authority and majesty. The hairs on his head are like wool. For the original audience, again, the prophecy of Daniel would have been in mind, where in describing the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7 verse, 9, 7 verse 9, Daniel says, I beheld till the thrones were cast down, and the Ancient of Days did sit, whose garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was like a fiery flame, and his wheels as a burning fire. Christ, then we see, with his white hair is a depiction of the casting down of the Ancient of Days drawn from Daniel chapter 7. What does it describe then? That in Christ's person, in Christ's personality, one of the attributes of God is on full display. He is eternal. How many times already through Revelation chapter 1 has he been described as Alpha and Omega, the one who was and the one who is yet to come? He is the beginning and the end. He is eternal and holds all things in his hand. 
Second, Christ is described not just as the one in possession of an eternal kingdom, but as the one with eyes like a flame of fire. Just as the one described in Daniel's vision again in chapter 10, verse 6, with eyes that are able to discern and cast judgment. Christ's vision of us and of even his churches goes beyond all the external acts that we are limited to evaluate. Consider this for a moment, that when Christ evaluates your faithfulness, it will not be on the merits of the things that you do, but it will be on the merits of the reason why you did the things you did. He is able to perceive beyond the heart, beyond even our intentions that sometimes get mixed up. Now, I know I'm not the only person that has ever had good intentions and done something poorly. But if I am, you can all use me as your illustration. Sometimes we have good intentions and we do things poorly. Sometimes we have good intentions and it comes across hurtful. We've heard it's the thought that counts, right? To Christ. He will be able to perceive beyond even the thought. He will be able to discern the very condition of your heart that motivated you to have those intentions. His eyes, like a fiery furnace, able to discern and to judge. It goes beyond misunderstandings. It focuses on our desire. For from desire sprout forth intentions and actions and words and every little thing that we could possibly offer. What is our desire? If it is not Christ, if it is not His glory, He will know. His feet were like burnished bronze. As I looked at this and I considered what the significance of burnished bronze can be, and I looked at this hopefully in my best attempt as close as I can possibly come to understanding the first century audience that was receiving this letter. Burnished bronze has been used before to describe only one thing. That was the altar on which the sin sacrifice was offered. Here we stand, see Christ as eternal judge with discerning eyes and as the sacrifice of sin, able to purify sin. His appearance in John's vision reveals him as the one to whom sacrifices are made. His voice is described as the roar of many waters. Ezekiel used this same language when he had a vision of God's glory filling the temple at last. In Ezekiel 43 verse 2, he said, And behold, the glory of God of Israel came from the way of the east, and His voice was like a noise of many waters, and the earth shined with His glory. As we consider what the image of Christ possibly communicates to us, why John was instructed to record these things, for what purpose it was given to these seven churches in the first century, for what purpose it has been preserved throughout history for the church today, I contend this. It is simply giving us a renewed vision of God's glory. 
Christ came to the earth and He made Himself man that we would be able to identify with our sinfulness. But we need to be reminded of His deity, of His glory, of the eternal presence of God in heaven that exists in His throne room, that overflows and fills the entire cosmos with all that there is to be perceived in His great majesty and person. From His mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. We should be familiar with this, having studied Hebrews and Ephesians. We know the significance of the sword because it describes the very Word of God. Thus, it is being produced from His mouth. Isaiah describes the similar depiction in saying of Himself in Isaiah 49 verse 2, that He hath made my mouth like a sharp sword, describing what took place as He prophesied to the people in rebellion of His day. Hebrews 4.12 describes the very Word of God as quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. You thought it were only possible that Christ could perceive your very soul and understand your intentions. But loved ones, we find encouragement as we reflect on the nature of this divine, holy, inspired, infallible book that we hold in our hands this evening. This book is capable of discerning your heart's intentions. You want to make sure that you're right before the Lord. You want to make sure that when Christ perceives you, that you are not surprised by anything that He casts judgment upon because we are confident that His judgment will be righteous and true and just. Spend time with this book. This book discerns our very heart to us. All of this, when we take it all into account and we take this picture that John turned and he saw a glorified Savior, we see immediately the comfort of knowing that Christ still lives. I believe one of the most awful side effects that have come from neglecting books of apocalyptic writing in biblical literature is that our concept of Jesus Christ has been shaped by only two events. The first advent, which is Christmas, where we see our Savior in a, wrapped in swaddling cloth. And the crucifixion, where we see Him hanging on a tree. Loved ones, if that is our view of Christ, we do not serve a Lord. We simply serve a sacrifice. Our concept of Christ must be threefold. He came as an infant wrapped in swaddling cloth. He died on a cross and He was resurrected and ascended to the glories of heaven where He reigns to this day. He is still Lord. He is glorious. The angels fly around Him declaring, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. Who is worthy to go out from before us and bring the scroll of the Lamb? When John saw Him, we asked, First, who is John? What did he see? What did he do when he saw it? Look at verse 17. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. This is the reaction that the church should have when we recognize the holiness and the glory of God. There is no other acceptable reaction but to fall at his feet and to praise him. 
If you thought that this was something that could only be conjured by means of being able to see all of this glory, wool-like hair, fire-like eyes, think again. Recount for a moment what takes place and transpires in Luke chapter 5 as Peter is out fishing. The Savior comes, sits on his boat, tells him to cast off into the deep, throw his net out one more time. And when he draws on the net, he gets one or two fish. That was just to make sure you guys are still listening. No one objected, so this is the show, right? Pay attention. Did Peter draw up one or two fish in Luke chapter 5? He drew up so many fish with his net that as they brought them on board the boat, it began to sink. Not just one boat, but they called a fishing partner over to fill his boat up too, and both boats began to sink. As Peter did this, what was his reaction to realizing that he was in the presence of the divine? He fell on his face and he said, Be gone from me, for I am just a sinner. Luke chapter 5, verse 7, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. This was in the presence of Christ on earth. This is the reaction that we should have when faced with the visage of Christ. Not in the immediate sense that we should literally see Him now, but that we should be faced with His true glory and His goodness. If we meditate on the person of God and we consider for a moment what it means to be perfectly holy, if we understand that even in an inkling of the sense that which is possible for our finite human minds, the only reaction we should have is depart from me, O Lord, for I am a sinful man. This is all that we could possibly offer. But we'll remember what takes place next in Luke chapter 5. Christ lays his hand on Peter and he says, fear not. It turns out the immutable Lord has not changed his response. Look back at Revelation chapter 1 verse 17. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. This remarkable encouragement reminds us that there are two sides to the same coin when we come into the presence of God. Sure, first, there should be awe, fear. There should even be contrition. If we have any concept of the sinfulness of man, that which exists in our flesh beyond what we will experience in glory, imagine for a moment standing in the presence of a holy God that cast out all wrongness. There should be fear. And if you think that you have purified yourself so much that you live without sin, I will tell you, as John wrote in 1 John, you are deceiving yourself. There should be fear. But we do not serve a Savior, neither do we serve a Lord who relishes our fear, but comforts us in it. Do not fear, for I am the first and the last, the living one. Why does he say, I am the living one, in reaction to John's fear? Because it is in his living that we have confidence that there is life yet for us. In the sacrifice of Christ, we have a real testimony of strength and assurance that exists. 
He died and behold, he is alive forever. He lives and will live forevermore. He has the keys of death in Hades because there is no conquering left for us. There is no fear of death. There is no fear of Hades because Christ is our life. Verse 19 goes on, Write therefore the things that you have seen, those that are and those that are to take place after this. Write the things that are to be seen because the church needs to hear it. The church needs to be reminded that they do not serve a martyred Savior. Our God did not come and fail His mission on earth but succeeded in the most marvelous of fashions. He has ascended to the most holy place. He is preparing for you and I, if we place our faith in Him, a place in the holiest of places. Why is the book of Revelation written to real people at a real place and time? Because they were experiencing tribulation. Because they were experiencing the need for patience and endurance. Just consider for a moment, why would John say that he is their partner in patience and endurance? Mothers, when you think about the, the, the mom who has yet to have their first child, and they tell you, I am the most patient woman I know, do you sit back and go, I bet I'd be patient too if I had nothing to need my patience. Do you understand what I'm saying? Is that too confusing? How do we know we are patient when there is a cause that makes us need it? How do we know that we can endure when there is a cause to make us endure? Did a push-up contest with Jake recently. Now, I know most of you have observed how ridiculously strong I am. Like, I am just a spectacle of a man, a true Adonis in every sense of the word, wouldn't you say? No, I'm soft and squishy and my arms are kind of sticky. There's not, there's not a whole lot there except for the fat cells I've accumulated from eating too much good food this past week because you guys went above and beyond in providing for the church. Do you know why I was confident I was able to win a push-up contest with Jake? Because push to the test, I know what endurance means. I know I may not have the muscle mass that a, a young teenager has, strapping young lad like Brother Jake. But I know I've got the mental fortitude to push through any pain that comes up. Do you know why I know that? Because I've had cause for endurance in my life. John writes to the church, he is their partner in patient endurance because the church needs to be reminded that they are to patiently endure. He says, I am your partner in the tribulation because the church needs to be reminded that no matter what happens, no matter how we think things will work out, God is in control and His promises are secure. And whether we're right, wrong, or nobody even cares, we're going to serve God until we are in glory with Him. Our finish line is in the New Jerusalem. So what did John do? He wrote down all the things that he saw. Because the only mark of assurance that the believer has is in obeying the word of Christ. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. 
God, I pray that you would impress upon us its significance. God, I thank you for the week of revival that we have experienced. And Lord, I ask that it would not stop. God, I pray that your word would continue to work in the hearts of those that love you. That we would continue to plant seeds of our testimony in all that we come in contact with. And God, I pray that all that we do would be done for your glory. In Christ's name, amen.